Welcome to episode two of The Reading Cure. In this episode, we'll be discussing the novel The Fall by Albert Camus. Welcome to The Reading Cure, where great books and great ideas are what we like to prescribe. I'm Dr. Stephen Davis, and my co-host is Dr. Alexander Fox. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Albert Camus' iconic philosophical novella, The Fall, which was famously described by his contemporary Jean-Paul Sartre as perhaps the most beautiful and least understood of Camus' works. Camus was, of course, a renowned French intellectual, author and journalist, often associated with the existentialist movement, although he consistently disavowed that label. He was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature at the age of 44 for iconic works such as The Stranger, The Rebel and The Myth of Sisyphus, and he tragically died in a car crash just a few years after receiving that award. The Fall recounts the story of a former Parisian lawyer, Clemence, now in self-imposed exile in Amsterdam, who has undergone a moral crisis in his life. A series of revelatory events that he recounts have left him utterly cynical and bent upon exposing the egotism and sham inhumanity, which he feels that most people live in utter denial of. At the start of the novel, he latches on to a fellow Parisian he meets in a seedy bar, and then he subjects his unnamed companion to a cunningly contrived confession, which we later find out is intended to open the unnamed man's eyes to his own baseness and hypocrisy. What his companion, and of course the reader too, has actually undergone is in fact Clemence's radical solution to his own predicament, where he has become the self-appointed judge penitent of his fellow creatures. Hi there, Alex. Um, uh, hi, so Stephen. how how did you enjoy uh, revisiting the fall then? Well, I, I'm I'm glad to say I didn't find it quite as unnerving as I did when I first read it. You know, fifteen twenty years ago, probably because at that time it chimed more with my, you know belated cynicism that you're meant to have in your teenage years but I, I you know seemed to kick in in my early 20s <laughs> and so Clemence's perspective resonated more at that time I think reading it now I still found it remarkably eloquent uh, of course the character is meant to be it's part of his seductive appeal sure. and there, there are some good insights about human nature in it but I still found it, um, or I did find it this time, a more constructed story, uh, more contrived in some ways. And I'm not saying necessarily that's how Camus expected us to to feel at the, at the conclusion of this novel, um, you know, for us to doubt Clemence's account in some ways. But that, that was more a prominent feature for me this time. Okay, uh, yeah. How was it for you then? Um, yeah, it's it's interesting that I I mean it's not it's obviously it's not a feel good novel although you can you know as you as you described it as it is a beautifully written novel so yeah I mean that was something that second time around um, I could appreciate and as you say that the, yeah the construction of it um, it is quite an ambiguous novel I think you know it's it's um, I think it's meant to leave you a little bit uncertain about quite what 
what Camus intended, maybe how much of himself was coming through mm-hmm. in this character and so on. So yeah, I think it's a very interesting novel, but um, but yeah, I, I'm not sure that, like yourself, the, the sentiments of it possibly didn't, didn't resonate as much as they might have done uh, at a younger age. Um, now, and, in and, terms and we, of, don't, we don't want to sound too dismissive there, saying that it's only a novel for adolescents or anything. It's not that. Um, but for some reason, we've shifted our perspective. Um, maybe, yeah, maybe, I, maybe uh, as Harold Wilson would say, we've immatured with age. We don't know. Um, <laughs> maybe we were, yeah. were more profound when we were younger reading it. I don't know. But, but this discussion will help us sort it out, I think, too. I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's not for me, it's not so much. I kind of um, in any way dissing the quality of the novel I mean it is no. it is a beautiful novel um, but yeah I think in terms of just how much it speaks to you I think it's interesting that maybe at different different points in life it could be a novel that has more or less resonance as you say maybe maybe in another 20 years we'll be absolutely we'll be like Clemenza's herself perhaps by that point I don't know <laughs> yes <laughs> I'll be hanging around the pubs of Dundee trying to do what he did I think I think he chose a more apt venue for it to be honest than pubs in Dundee I just I just don't think that he would listen long enough without having a drink by their side um, i think i think that's a good point you might be struggling to get that person to, to come I back again so. for the second night i think to so and i just monologue. don't think they'll buy it so much that perspective um yeah clements uh, yes. was more he was more eloquent and he where he was was more suited i think to that uh introspection I would, I would, I would agree with you there. I think yeah. so. So, I, I mean, coming. So, in terms of just you know getting down to the nitty gritty of this novel, so a couple of yeah. things I want to say about it, and then then a question for you. Um, so, obviously, the, the novel is is in the form of a series of confessional monologues by this protagonist who we've mentioned, who calls himself John Baptiste Clemens. Mm-hmm. Although we find out actually that's not his real name. He confesses to that as it goes on. Um, but he seems to be a, a former uh, Parisian lawyer who's now in this self-imposed exile in Amsterdam. And during these monologues where he um, has met this this unnamed uh, interlocutor at a, at a bar in the red light district, um, he tells this, this story of his life and his fall. So as as the novels as the title of the novel suggests so my first question really alex that i thought we could explore was what what do you see as the nature of this fall that that clemence has un, has undergone yeah well, i mean that's the that's the key question you know if we can't sort that out then we're not going to really understand the novel as a whole so i think but you know i i was thinking maybe the best way for us to talk about it, and it might make more sense for our listeners is to break it down into three key questions here if we take the fall as a kind of metaphor or a motif here and mm-hmm. so the first part would be well what was the nature of his original elevated position you know what we cause, because you know a fall is from uh, a greater height to a lesser height so what was the nature of his this original elevated position I think that's the first key question uh, regarding his fall the second thing would be well what is the nature of this transition from higher to lower um, okay. it's almost like an inversion so what 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 does that involve and then the third part which is maybe a little less obvious is that you know when we have a fall, it's usually an injury of some kind, or it can be. And so what kind of injury did Clemens suffer and how does he recuperate, so to speak? So I think mm-hmm. probably if we cover those three 
three dimensions, we'll, we'll probably cover quite a bit about what is the nature of the fall. Um, okay. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> sorry to be long-winded about that, but, but you know, to go back to, I suppose, the, 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 the first sub-question, to put it that way, would be what is the nature of the elevated position that he has? And so we, we find at the start of this story when he recounts how he was, you know, in this Edenic-like state, that you can see he had this inflated, you know, egotism. Uh, this this sense that that uh, you know there was a simplicity to his life. He never questioned his goodness because it seems almost as though he was entirely identified with goodness. I, th- I think there's a part of the novel where he said he was like justice itself. So, you know, his moral credentials were never in question. He was, he, you know, as he says later, it was this profound self-satisfaction uh, that he had. So this elevated position is is kind of intimating um, the, you know, his ego, that it was inflated, that, he, you know, he, he almost had this godlike relationship with virtue. He even says at one point he was like a god lured into the courtroom to speak and to and to pronounce what was good and what was just, so that there was this, you know, tremendous certainty, and with that tremendous certainty, a certain simplicity to his life, to his being. Uh, he then comes to question that. We could get onto that in a minute, but that's what I would say would be the nature of that elevated position that he had. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, there's a nice quote actually I've got from the novel here where, where, right. where Clemence says, For a long time I lived in the illusion of a general agreement, whereas from all sides, judgment, arrows, mockeries rained on me, inattentive and smiling. The day I was alerted, I became lucid. I received all my wounds at the same time and lost my strength all at once. The whole universe then began to laugh at me. And uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's like... Um, this incident, which, um, of course, the famous point in the story yeah. where he, he hears a, a woman has jumped into the, the river yes. Seine and he, he freezes, he doesn't act, he, he thinks about it'll be cold in the river and then he hears her drowning and he does nothing and then he goes home. This mm. obviously was this bombshell for him where his, as you described, almost godlike um, self-assurance where he just felt he was this this model of goodness because he was perceived socially to be such a great man and um, this was completely shattered by this this uh, this moment i guess when he yes. came to understand what it what it said about him um, yes i mean it, it's it's uh, his social standing or what he thinks is his social standing and his own perception of himself it's this illusory stature uh this this false height that yes. he has you know a false height with no real depth and that that is his original elevated uh you know position you know a godlike security in his own virtue uh you know as a little side note it does seem a, um a bit difficult to believe that somebody as uh, eloquent and uh, as introspective as Clemens was ever quite as um at one with himself is that, but that's what we're led to believe at the start of of, of the his his uh, recounting. So yes, I mean because it was uh, this illusory stature, this this inflated egotism, this sense you could almost call it hubristic pride. And what I mean by that is that you're inherently good. It's not based really on your actions. Whatever emanates from you is going to be good. And so he had this at oneness 
with himself. And that's his Edenic state. It's almost before self-consciousness, just like the biblical fall. So, yep. yeah, I, th I think we would both agree that that's where he, where he started. Um, the, the, the next thing is, you know, what's the nature of that transition from higher to lower, you know, in terms of height, but in terms of obviously his his perspective on his moral stature um you know what was your view on that 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 shift really yeah i mean it's interesting the way it is depicted because it, there's a series of incidents that he recounts i've, I've mentioned the, the 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 woman drowning in the river where he doesn't help her um and he, and he, he mentions another incident where he uh, he's he's involved in an altercation um, outside of his car where he's he's made to look foolish in front of um in front of all the, there's a traffic jam i think and he gets out and he's thinking about fighting with somebody and then he gets punched unawares and just essentially is laughed at and again this um this seems to really have struck him as well so it's like the, these series of incidents um, over a period of years i guess in the novel it suggests just just made him start to have this experience of self self-doubt and self-awareness um, now, as you said, it's it's a tricky one because I I I would agree with you. He seems like such a a sharp, um, savvy character. It does seem a little bit unlikely in a way that the way he constructs this narrative of absolute obliviousness in Eden to to absolute you know self hate um, doesn't seem to quite quite fit for somebody as, as as savvy as he is. But then, of course, as the novel progresses, we realise. Everything he said has been a constructed narrative to try to have an effect on the on the person that he's talking to. So again, we don't actually know what we can and can't believe. So in terms of how this transition from innocence to fall mm -hmm. played out for him, I mean, we can only if we take at face value what he says that that would seem to be the been the process. This this realizing that he um, he isn't admired by everybody. Sometimes he's laughed at. Sometimes he does he does well pretty much all the time he does things to look good rather than to actually be good so this this dawning awareness seemed to be the thing that that shattered his faith in himself and therefore um shattered his faith in life i guess that's that's kind of how i would see the the transition as best we can make sense of it what did yeah no I would, you... I would agree with you that there is uh that question of how sincere it is or how it might be overly symmetrical the narrative in the sense that the shift is so so stark so profound um you know like an in, it's an inversion isn't it as you say from innocence to experience yes. but i think what we're dealing with here actually is what could be called experience as a profound cynic would see it because what we what we see is um this initial professing that uh, he and virtue were one in essence, and then realizing allegedly that uh, all his moral actions were driven by vanity and lust for power. So the, the 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 shift from higher to lower is, in a sense, from believing at one point in higher motivations, uh, in fact, seeing that he could not be motivated by anything but that to lower baser emotions and much of the the novel is him trying to argue through anecdotes and maxims that really human beings are just motivated by baser motivations uh, you know that uh, what what we're talking about is vanity lust 
uh, desire to dominate. He gives plenty of examples that seem to, in his mind, corroborate that that's really what's going on. So the, the fall is uh, a fall from, you know, believing in higher motivations to this profound cynicism where uh, it's essentially um, that we're all motivated by baser things. Uh, that that was what I took away from it in terms of that fall. Yeah, I um, think so. I mean, this this is this is a key point here. Really, is that he is such a strange character in that sense because he, he as he depicts himself, this absolute sense of narcissism and also obliviousness. You know, um, if it was the case as he professes that he he simply almost had no non egotistical motives prior to this kind of fall, mm-hmm. he simply that was what he did. He pursued his own interest and in, and in virtually nothing else. Then obviously that kind of you know, he, he seems to be assuming that everybody's like that deep down, and that's that's essentially the cynicism whereby he now knows that's what was going on with him, and he and he sees that in himself. But it's like self awareness without really the capacity for any moral improvement. Whereas, yes, yeah. you know, I mean, I think it would seem to be kind of more commonsensical to think that not everybody would initially in an innocent state have that level of absolute narcissism kind of unadulterated self self-interest and no. um, so therefore you know the, the this kind of trajectory of innocence to to cynicism wouldn't be the path you would assume people would would take in such a black and white way if they were to yes. say become a bit more self-aware about when they've been egotistical and when they've been narcissistic and so on so yeah Absolutely. it's like the, the ex- um, so yeah, it's like he's gone on a very extreme journey. But again, in, in in either case, to me, what he doesn't really seem to be able to do is kind of more grow as a person. It's just this sense of a, a naive narcissism to more cynical self interest. Yes, and, and yeah. That, that's it. That's the journey. Well, I mean that that I, I would agree with you on that. And and this leads us on to that third part. But before we move on to that, I just want to say one thing: is that I think that. He does through this journey or alleged journey. He does. He mm-hmm. does acknowledge, uh, you know, a real moral insight, which is that the ego can wear a thousand masks, and one of the ways that it can manifest itself is through morality. That the ego can be ambitious through morals. Um, it can corrupt our morals, and yet it can seem as though we are being moral. And that is a genuine realistic moral insight the only thing is that he totalizes it he generalizes it he actually corrupts that moral insight by by his profound cynicism yes. uh, no, that's that's a good point, a good uh, point. but i was going. yeah i mean in terms of that um lack of growth that you intimated i think mm-hmm. this is um leads on to, you know, well, what was the, the injury and how did he recuperate? And as, as we've both intimated, it was a narcissistic injury, you know, that, that uh, this profound shift in his self-conception, going from seeing himself at one with virtue to uh, thinking that he is uh, irredeemably bad and there's no potential for, for growth there. But what, what he does, which I think is really interesting, is that he rather than see it as an opportunity to grow, to develop as a person, um, he wants a vindictive triumph. So it's like his ego still wins out. And when I say a vindictive triumph, it's he feels ter- tremendously abased by his moral standing. And he thinks to himself, how can I address this? How can I elevate myself again? 
And the way in which he does it is that he becomes a judge. You know, as uh, he actually lays out his strategy that how he appeases his own self-condemnation, his own guilt is to accuse everyone else too. So, you know, he himself is not too bad if everyone else is just as bad. But but where he is elevated is that he has the discernment, uh, the experience to know this, and then he can be judge of his fellow men. So he achieves another kind of pseudo-elevation uh, in, this, in this novel. Yes, exactly. So yeah, that and that's interesting, isn't it? That there's a there's a fall, but then there's a there's a kind of rise again. Um, yes, you know, and, and 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 at least in terms of his kind of ego defense, I suppose you could say. But yeah, I quite agree with you as you as you described it there. Um, he finds a pseudo solution really to how to this um, this sudden awareness of his own hypocrisy, I guess you could say. But again, it's so bound up in. And others, in in the sense of being above them, and and it's it's now a different way in which he can be above them by this virtue of having this awareness and being the the preeminent judge of of immorality everywhere, and um, that he somehow gets this sense of of victory or as you said, vindictive triumph even. So yeah, it's quite a it's quite a dark and I guess unconvincing um you know solution that that, that he comes up with, but it. But I mean, again, this is, you know, this is obviously the character. It's not to, um, you know, to talk down the, you know, the, the interesting and, no. and kind of uncomfortable issues that the novel does raise, actually, for the reader, because it's, you know, he's obviously a particularly extreme case, Clements, but there's also something, you know, something that he's saying that we can all kind of take heed of in ourselves, I think. <laughs> When you think about um, the relationship between the narrative form and the themes, you know, the the dramatic monologue, the interlocutor and things like that, because that's probably something we should touch on too. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's a, it's a good, yeah. To me, the, the it's quite a dazzling, hypnotic uh, style. You know, it, it's powerful. It's also quite excruciating and claustrophobic as well. I find yeah. it's an interesting mixture. You know, it's he, he comes out with these beautiful phrases, so you really you are quite wowed by him. But as it goes on, it's painful because it's this sense of this person who who just is is so trapped in themselves that they you know there's there's nothing comes back. You know, it's like he's trapped in this this monologuing world. Um, and yeah, in terms of the themes. Um, well, I mean the, the novel. I mean, it's not it's not a cheer it's not a cheerful novel. It's looking at the, you know no. themes like hypocrisy and the the sense of exile and futility, and you know it really does you know brilliantly convey this this lost soul who is is lost in himself first and foremost, and he's he's kind of you know there's there's almost this sort of um, strange delight he's taken in having exiled himself to a place that he perceives as like hell on earth. You know, he makes all these allusions to the inner circles of hell and, the, you know, the Amsterdam canal networks and, you know, quite, um, mm. you know, quite a sort of somber view mm. of, of the location mm. that he's reveling in, in a way. But again, all of this seems quite detached and lonely. You know, it's it's not really a, it's not a an image or an experience that he's capable of sharing, although he's he's narrating it. He's not he can't really connect to anybody else. He's so lost in himself. So yeah, I think the narrative form was was perfect actually to convey that that kind of person. I thought it was it was beautifully done. Um, yeah, what, I mean, I think we... that's a really good point that the monologue form is a sort of symptom 
of how while he's communicating in one sense, he's also trapped in his own perspective. I mean, you know, one one good thing, one way of comparing it would be to say a Socratic dialogue, you know, an actual dialogue where you uh, you test and you might change your opinions. What we see here is that the dramatic monologue is a, is a sign of uh, an isolation created by the certainty that he has. You know, his perspective is so certain and so definite and so absolutist that uh, you can't really engage in that through dialogue. Uh, I know that he's sharing it with an interlocutor, but uh, it, it shows... Um, or it betrays that absolutism and that isolation, unlike, say, a Socratic dialogue where you, uh, you're you open to or have to defend your view. Um, here, he doesn't really have to. The, the interlocutor is more listening, just as the reader, um, you know, is too. And I think the, the interlocutor just being schematically depicted allows them to stand in for us. So it's like we're looking over the interlocutor's shoulder as Clemens is talking to this interlocutor. Um, I, I think it's, you know, and this interlocutor doesn't say too much. I mean, very occasionally he makes some remark. Um, and, you know, again, if he was saying something very definite, then that would act as a as a sort of barrier between us and Clemens. The fact that interlocutor doesn't really say his opinions much um, means that then we can we're we're freer to interpret and uh, construct our own. I think also the interlocutor being a rather quiet um, very subtly suggests um, that we might approach this with some critical detachment because there's a few points in the novel where Clemens tries to get an answer from his interlocutor and he doesn't get one. Um, the suggestion that this uh, interlocutor doesn't fully confide or trust in him or, or is wary, I think that might be a subtle way of conveying to the, the reader that we should also be wary and a bit detached, that we, we shouldn't get too seduced by this very eloquent... Uh, you know, speaker. Yeah, great, great points. Uh, uh, absolutely, I think I think that is what's so what's so so clever about it. Really, it is it is hard to to quite find a definite take on Clemens. He, he's 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 dazzling. It's almost like a seduction, you know, of his verbal brilliance. But at the same time, you know, there is deliberate insertions of of distance that that do make us take stock of him. So I, I, I certainly think that both you know both of those things are are, are what Camus was was intending uh, for us to do in making sense of Clements. Moving now to talk about some of the the mental health implications of the fall. Um, so, Alex, one one uh, interesting issue that comes up is that is guilt. Um, the question is though, is Clemence's guilt? Obviously, he, he talks from the perspective of a judge making these judgments. Is it really guilt, or is it is it shame that's actually the more the pertinent emotion here? And if so, how can we tell the difference between them? Well, maybe it would be good to start by. Try to distinguish shame from guilt. <clears throat> I mean, with with guilt, what we, what we have is uh, a sense that some action was wrong, 
and when it's when it's healthier, uh, there's an attempt to make some reparation to the person that has been wronged. So guilt, I think, is more focused on uh, wrong action or harmful action and wanting to make some amends. It's it's been generally given a higher moral status than shame. And in the case of shame, what we see is not so much a focus on action, but more who you fundamentally are. So it's it, with guilt, it might be that action was wrong or I was bad in doing X, Y, or Z. But with shame, it is more I am bad. It is more a sense of of being corrupted, of being inherently damaged or uh, or bad. That, that Shame is more about the identity of the person. It's not as though shame can't for, uh, you know, have a moral function. Um, not often it does, though, because uh, it leads to retreat, usually, rather than confrontation or dealing with the issue. So if someone feels shamed about what they've done, they, they will tend to hide away. But not necessarily. Um, they might try and make amends, uh, having recognised there's some flaw in their character, if, if, it's, if it's legitimate shame. Uh, but it could also make people aggressive too, so because it's such a painful feeling to, to experience. So they might take it out on other people. Um, say if a family member thinks another member of the family has shamed the family, then they might get rather aggressive. Uh, towards them. When when it comes to Clemens, uh, I'm not sure how much it's guilt and how much it's shame, but I think that shame probably plays a part in this because he does see his actions um, as revealing, uh, you know, a very corrupted uh, moral status. You know, he, he believes that uh, he's irredeemably bad, but that's okay because we all are. So, uh, and And I think that there's bound to be some shame because shame is the the obverse side of that hubristic pride. So if we talk about his original elevation, where he was justice itself, that, that means that he is inherently good uh, in his very being. Well, the opposite of that would be that you were inherently bad. So it would be surprising if shame uh, was not a dimension here, particularly when he was so affected by... Uh, being laughed at or what he thought was laughter at him, the sense of being ridiculous, uh, that suggests that there was some shame, I think, there. Yeah, I, I absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, there was, a, there was a number of interesting points there, Alex, that I would want to um, pick up on. Obviously, you, you mentioned, first of all, that I think this is a great distinction between, you know, uh, you know guilt as potentially to do with actions you know maybe harmful actions mm -hmm. that and which again of course brings in the possibility of repair um whereas of course the guilt that clements is is you know avowing on on all of humanity is irredeemable it's just there's nothing can be done yes. with it other than of course his own personal solution to it so that's interesting and of yeah. course all you know all of the the incidents in which he recounts um, you know, as having contributed to his fall, they involve the sense of being laughed at, having been seen in a poor light. So again, it's all it's all ego. It's all um, this sort of comparative inferiority. So again, we do seem to be strongly, I would have thought, in the realm of of shame here. The, the, almost the degree to which, fr from a sort of ego point of view, he's he's fallen from from godlike to this sense of being absolute 
kind of moral trash. Again, I mean, if it's guilt, it's a guilt completely devoid of rationality there, because again, obviously this is, you know, he was he was never a god to begin with, of course, so therefore, you know, um, he really can't can't fall quite as far as he as he seems to be claiming he has, and we all have. Um, yes, so, yeah, yeah, I, 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 th- I think so. That that uh, that there is that sense of uh, being moral trash, but where he could get some kind of victory through uh, judging others, and 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 maybe shame plays a part in the accusatory dimension of uh, this confession. In that, if 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 it was entirely guilt. I think he would be just confessing where he, he, he did not live up to standards that he thought represented goodness. But the the attempt, and we don't know how successful it was on this given interlocutor, uh, the attempt to then accuse him and then the human race of the same thing uh, could be that aggression or that attacking that, that deflects or displaces shame. I th- yeah, that I think that that's a good point as well. Yeah, um, I mean it, it's the fact for me that he what what's the essence of his you know horror here is the fact that other people judge him. You know, it's this idea that you you judge or or you are judged. Um, but I mean, of course, the fact is that in reality, a lot of people judge themselves. So he he's kind of making the contention that the moment he realised he was being negatively judged, you know, a sense his world was shattered there because he'd never considered he mm. might be negatively mm. judged. You know, he mm. had that kind of naive narcissistic outlook, and and he's therefore therefore contending that th- this is this is hell on earth. This sense that other people are looking at you sometimes actually um, judging you unfairly. You know, he he describes the idea that. Um, you know, he wouldn't want to commit suicide because people would just think his his motivations were very crass, whereas actually we'd want them to think they were much grander. So mm, everything mm. comes down to this this sense of his image, I guess. Um, yes, and again, yeah. yeah, to me that you know that's not quite guilt really, because I think I mean we we talked about guilt last week when we talked about free will, of course, and the fact that people can often be terribly hard on themselves. Um, but it's not always to do with um the sense that they've just looked bad. It might be, but um, yeah, to no. me, um, this is really about shame, although he's, he's, he's very much in the role of the judge um, issuing guilty verdicts. Yeah, I, I mean, I would uh, agree that shame plays a big part here in, in that it's the wrong kind of attention. I mean, that's why the shamed person will try and diminish themselves, make themselves look smaller, because they are horrified by getting this wrong kind of attention, This this what they perceive as this very piercing critical attention which is obviously the the very opposite of that admirous adulatory gaze that he thought he got in the courtroom when he, oh, he yes. was performing very well so i think shame does play a big part here as you say because uh it's very much about his self-image what i what i would add here this was just my perception is that i do think that um even though we've been critical about his reaction towards the lady uh, falling in the scene. I, I do think that uh, it did pierce through some of his egotism, what happened there. I, the, way I, the way I interpreted it is that while he was very pragmatic and egotistical um, in how he went about things, that that cry from the woman haunted him because it, it did elicit some fellow feeling 
towards other human beings, that it was there in him. It may not have been predominant, but it was there in him. And I think um, it haunted him to some extent there. So um, I'm not saying he should have felt guilty for that, but I think it did arouse some guilt too. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a fair point. Actually, it's a good it's a good distinction because yeah, I mean, again, the the, the haunted um, the sense of being haunted by laughter, you know, it becomes this motif that he you know on cruises and mm-hmm. you know he keeps hearing this laughter. And as you say, yeah, it's it, it, that it probably is, I guess, more than just just shame, just the memory of having looked bad. Because of course, in this incident, tellingly, nobody was watching, so so he, he kind of no. did this without being seen. So yeah, I, I guess for for this to have to have really hurt him and shaken him shaken him to the core then then yeah clearly there was there was more than just just i think so i think so because if if it if it it, it was shame alone then he could have just not spoke about it at all i mean we know that when we're ashamed of something we generally don't disclose it so he he, you know for him to turn those events into a story. Okay, it's not his name that he's, it's not his actual name that he's giving. Uh, it's its probably highly constructed, fabricated, but still it's not the way that you would probably deal with something if it was entirely shame. I think there was an added ingredient of, um, of guilt there too. You know, if, if his perspective is distorted, as I think we both believe it is, you know, what role do you think an excessive self-consciousness played in that? Well, yeah, I mean, I think he's, you know, from what we've been piecing together here, Alex, you know, it's it's quite a unique kind of fall, really, that he that he's depicted there, although he, he does seem to be wanting to make the case for it being a kind of universal experience. It maybe is to some extent. But yeah, I think I think the self-consciousness is absolutely key. Um, the fact that he recounts his pleasures prior to his fall, um, they were they were all so egocentric and and even when he began to fall, I guess he, he fell into more kind of debauchery, as he describes it, um, drunkenness, lust, and all these things. Um, and I think what's distinctly lacking in all of this at any point actually is that he didn't seek to really connect with anybody. You know, there was no solution to him in any kind of kind of more authentic communication. I guess because all he all he really seems to have known is this kind of narcissistic. Um, sense of comparing himself to others and coming up on top, um, it just doesn't seem to occur to him to actually more try to communicate as an equal. And I think that's the, to me, that's the, the this extreme self consciousness that, and, and and I guess you know self self fixation. Um, and it's interesting, of course, that that he opts for exile. You know, it's it's obviously. Um, I mean, you you alluded earlier to the fact that you know people do sometimes through shame want to want to mm-hmm. retreat, and of course he has retreated, and he and he, he recounts some of these 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 affairs he had, the drunken behaviour, the sabotage in his career. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't say that maybe he maybe his exile actually was also just uh, you know to avoid facing up to the consequences, to the you know to the sense of being seen as a failure by others in Paris that he might have known. 
Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah. But yeah, no, to I think me, you're right. The, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, self-consciousness, I think, um, I think that's it. He, he has it, 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 the door locked, really, on any kind of communication. Um, he's absolutely, and he's built himself a kind of ego castle, and uh, he just, he's trapped in it. And, and it's, it's, you know, it's both his sense of, of kind of um, narcissistic kick, but also despair, I, I would say. Um, yeah, what, I mean, I think that's think? a good point, that uh, the exile and you know, moving away from Parisian society would be a sign of him feeling he can no longer live up to, that he can no longer be that actor as he once was, that uh, had unraveled and, uh, you know, various things that he'd done as well harmed his reputation, which would probably be connected to shame. And of course, self-consciousness is connected to shame. I think that, you know, this excessive self-consciousness that he had, um, if we see it from a mental health perspective, that usually when we do get our consciousness is divided in this way and it's turned back upon itself. And so it's like our own thoughts and feelings become the intentional object of uh, of our consciousness that that usually that puts us in quite a critical mood. Uh, I remember the psychoanalyst Theodore Reich saying that, you know, most of the time we're like someone that looks outside the window and, uh, you you know, is is quite unaware of the room that we're in. But when something happens in that room, we start to turn within and look in this darkened room. And he says that's like how it is with... um, with with our psyches. So in other words, it's this general idea that most of the time our consciousness is rather directed outward uh, with things that we're engaged in. But when it's turned within, usually it's because we've perceived some kind of problem. Uh, we're in some kind of critical mood, particularly the inner critic gets us looking back within ourselves. So what I'm saying is if we're inhabiting this state of constant introspection, it's probably going to uh, do quite a bit of harm to our mental health because we'll be not only uh, aware of more troubling things perhaps, but also seeing it it, it bathed in this critical light um, as well. Um, So I think that's one of the problems um, there with uh, self-consciousness, I would say. Yes, it's a really interesting um, way to describe it there. Um, and of course, with, with Clemence, as we've been discussing, uh, as you said, he's this looking out at the world, but for him, he's always looking out to see how the world's looking back at him. So yes. he, I guess he, he can never he can never stop introspecting in that way because he's so he's so caught up in that. So yeah, I yes. can imagine there, there would be something torturous actually about never being able to actually lose himself in in a conversation or in an activity when there's always this one you know this part of his mind that's keeping keeping tuned into this sense of how how am i looking am i dominating am i strong here yeah um so yeah it does it's yeah it would be a form of entrapment uh yeah this is something that victor frankl the logotherapist talked about he he had a a technique called de-reflection and this was meant to be an antidote to excessive self-consciousness. So, you know, for Frankel, meaning and purpose is, is by directing our attention, our consciousness to things outwardly that have that can ground us, can give us meaning and purpose. So de-reflection would be uh, losing that 
sense of self through some kind of absorbing activity where we can exist in a state of flow, which is very different to that um, heightened self-consciousness state where, uh, you know, our, our, our flaws become... They, they become bloated through that, that heightened attention, whereas de-reflection grounds us in, uh, you know, an external purpose, and it takes us away from that uh, heightened self-consciousness, which, you know, leads to anxiety and depression uh, and rumination, which is no doubt <laughs> what Clemence was uh, suffering from uh, in, in, in many ways. Well, indeed, I mean, this, this sort of anti-Socratic conversation that he's yes. involved in, you know, it's it's the ultimate um, failure to achieve that, the flow state that would come from actually being engaged in an interesting discussion. But um, as, as we alluded to earlier, because it's so one-directional, um, he, he, there's nothing can come back, but but yet it's it's all coming from him, but it's all about him. Um, yeah, I mean, it is. He, he's, it's that kind of sense of somebody who is, who's enjoying himself in an egotistical way, but in a very unfulfilling way that will have a kind of bitter aftertaste actually for him. Yes, it's, yeah. It's, it's, not a, it's not really, it could never be joyous that, however much it's kind of ego stroking in, in that moment. No, well, I mean, when, when we are happy, when we're absorbed in what we're doing, we're not self-conscious. And one of the interesting pieces of research is that um, when they've when they've studied uh, correspondence by people that have committed suicide they found more use of the first person pronoun I in their correspondence that they use it more so it's it's this idea that they've they've got this heightened self-consciousness so that shows you how pernicious it could be well, indeed, uh, yeah, and it's it's interesting you bring up the subject of suicide because, uh, as we alluded to, obviously this is something that that Clemens he, he essentially um, alludes to the fact he has thought about this. So he has he has been suicidal clearly, and he's obviously again, you know, recounting his his kind of toying with the notion. But one one thing um, I read that I thought was interesting on that subject by um, by Karen Horney, who obviously will, will be covering one of her books later in the series, and I'm uh, a, a fan of her her work. She she talks about the fact that suicide, when it's driven by a kind of neurotic vindictiveness, um, is a ve- it, it could be a kind of peculiar scenario whereby the person attempting or, or committing suicide might in a sense almost be expecting to be there to witness the reaction of those who who discover them and she says that no one would be more surprised than the suiciding individual to actually find themselves dead now i'm not obviously suggesting that applies to all cases of suicide of course not but in in this kind of scenario um from what you're describing it does seem to to me that does kind of fit with clemens even in something as dramatic as suicide to end his troubles it's only worthwhile if he can in a way be there to enjoy the reaction in some sense, you know, as if yeah. kind of ghost. I, I, ghost I mean, watching you're right. It. You're yeah. right that we can't say that all about with every person that feels suicidal. Oh no, of course, suicide. No. But no. we can say that it would be a subsection, as as we see with Clemens, that that uh, he had entertained those thoughts of suicide just to see how these friends would would behave. But then it seems that he was spared from committing suicide because he didn't think it would have the intended effect on them. So, uh, so yeah, it would be again a kind of he was hoping it, for it to be a sort of vindictive triumph that uh, that that he would finally. 
they would finally recognise how important he was to them. And it was because he didn't believe that they would react that way that, uh, yeah, it lost its appeal. So how do we how do we avoid the cynicism trap then? How do we protect ourselves from getting kind of stuck in that that really you know kind of grim cynicism about others? Yeah, well, I'm, I mean, again, just like when I was talking about shame, it might be a good thing just to say, well, what is cynicism really? And and we've talked a little bit about earlier on this idea that so called higher motivations are really baser motivations. So it's a kind of inverting. Uh, you know, what we think we were motivated by. It's a form of unmasking, or at least it seemed to, uh, cynics like to see it that way, that they've, they show, you know, they've took off the mask and shown the real face. Um, the problem about cynicism is that, you know, it's a bit like sentimentality. It's an excessive emotional reaction. It's a kind of emotional incontinence, really, because we've become too credulous of our suspicions. We think, if we're, if we're profoundly cynical, we think that our suspicions are the only thing that we can trust and our suspicions are the only thing that is true. Uh, we don't recognise that there are times where we have to be suspicious of our suspicions. We can't always trust our suspicions. But the cynic, who is actually profoundly motivated by fear, they, they prefer to trust their suspicions because they think, well, at least they'll be safe. So it's it's not good to be, a, to use that lingo, a growth mindset, if we're profoundly <laughs> cynical, because for one thing, there is this great definiteness. Um, and, uh, you know, a profound conviction that they're right. Uh, I, I mean, you know, you could say that cynicism is a kind of epistemic arrogance, the idea that you know for sure what motivates people, and it's always these base set of motivations. Um, and of course, it's, so it's not a very discerning or um, and judicious view of people. It doesn't say that, you know, well, it's possible that person X in situation Y might behave in a moral way. And we've got to learn to work out when they are motivated by something more moral and by something perhaps more base. It doesn't do discrimination. So that's why it's really seductive for people because you don't really have to think. Um, in, term, it, in terms of tackling it, I think that um, the fall gives us a bit of an idea here because uh, Clemens uses, you know, he uses a lot of maxi maxims, uh, a lot of witticisms, a lot of maxims that that uh, encapsulate in his view how humans really are, and that 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 exposes the the overgeneralizing tendency of cynicism, the idea that uh, things could be just reduced to, uh, you know, these base, you know, materialistic motivations. So when tackling it, I think what we're looking at is. Um, being very careful about not overgeneralizing about people. Uh, it is possible to be morally pessimistic about the human race, the idea that it is very hard for us to do the right thing. That and that, you know, and sometimes we don't even know what is the right thing. But even when we do, it can still be very hard. We're moral 
you know, we are morally frail. But what we have to recognise is that when we're dealing with a particular human being in a particular context, we can't necessarily and inevitably assume that our cynicism, if we have it, is going to apply there. Um, so it, it's recognising that the individual people might not be encapsulated by uh, more cynical or pessimistic views of humanity. I think that's one of the main ways of tackling it. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it's it's it obviously relies on a lot of parodying. You know, to me, it's 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 very closely connected to this. Um, keeping himself at a distance you know you obviously as you described there there's there's a fear actually fueling this you know that they, that, that such individuals you know they're not they're not actually quite willing to meet others on equal terms or be open you know open themselves up to you know they, they, they cling to this this suspicion as you said um like for example in in the folly in, in the start as you recall in the the bar scene he describes the um the barman as a cro-magnon man you know like yeah. a caveman and yeah. you know that so there's this there's this kind of strange um kind of jump into a kind of contemptuous depiction but then he goes on to actually suggest he actually somewhat likes the barman yeah. as well it's a very strange kind of mindset but again there's just this 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 need to kind of rely on a sort of bottom line what's this person all about and you know reduce reduce them to to whatever it may be so yeah, yeah. i i yeah i think yeah that was an interesting analysis you gave of that issue there um, um, can, well yeah. I, would, I would i would say when it came to the barman that actually his attitude makes sense from uh, a cynical point of view that yes he sees him as a caveman but he could actually like him because really represents what we fundamentally are, you know, that sort of uncouth base um, reality. And, and it's just, you know, more transparent with the Batman. Yeah, I, I guess that's true. I mean, I suppose Clements has, um, has deliberately only frequents, you know, he frequents these red light district bars, you know, there's this kind of, you know, draw towards places where he's more likely to encounter, I guess, people that that fit into his cynical scheme about human life. You know, he's not he's not going anywhere that's going to challenge that viewpoint actually. So yeah, as you say, the the barman is a Perhaps, you know, if he's been depicted fairly here, a bit brutish or money oriented or, or aggressive yes. or whatever else may be behind that. But yeah, I, I think it's like, it's a, I guess there's, there's, there's a, maybe an unconscious aversion to encountering anything in life that's going to challenge that, you know, parody view that he's, that he's holding on to here just because it, if, it, of course, as soon as he does, then his, you know, desire to be the judge you know becomes undermined you know if he, if he's not quite so able to just sum people up in, in this kind of cynical little sketch uh, kind of way yes yeah exactly because the cynic believes that how they see the world is the way it is uh they they think that their judgment is unerring as i say there's this arrogance to it uh, and and yeah. there's no need to rectify, amend, or make more nuanced your perspective if you, if you're an outright cynic, yeah. And you're comforted if you can find some base motivation uh, in what people do. You see it as well. That's what they're all about. And of course, the more declarative someone is, the more the cynic will will be uh, at home with that in a kind of strange way, perverse way. 
Yeah, I, I get. Yeah, indeed. Whereas, of course, you know, the the real terror maybe for the cynic is actually laying themselves bare. You know, in terms of you know being open, not not maybe quite in the way that Clemence is. You know, in mm-hmm. terms of this this kind of controlled revelation of his of his vices, but with this kind of underlying objective. But actually, a more, I suppose, a less constructed narrative and in, in, in his way of communicating, and more of just an an honest, you know. To, uh, talk about how he's feeling talk about what he's thinking you know i suppose it's that that um sense of you know communicating in an unrehearsed open way that the that this this a cynic like clemens um is is so desperately trying to avoid i, I guess because Absolutely. of the, the vulnerability yeah. involved in actually that kind of openness well i mean it's interesting you use that you refer to vulnerability because there is this famous work called the critique of cynical reason you know which is a a reworking of Kant's uh, famous work. But in the Critique of Cynical Reason, early on it says that cynicism is a defence against crying. So there is that intimation that is the defence against vulnerability. Uh, The cynic doesn't want to feel uh, real pain. They want to be protected against vulnerability. They never want to be vulnerable again, but therefore they can never really grow as people. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, interesting. So I guess um, this this is really getting to the the root of of Clemence's kind of impossible dilemma. Actually, that he you know he he can't grow, and of course he's so attached to his his superiority. But of course he can't cry either. You know, for no. for for all the despair. Actually, he's feeling he can't really quite feel it in that way, or certainly he can't share it. I, I, I would no. say no. Um, he can't. He can't. He can't cry for himself. He won't give himself that pity. He doesn't think that he deserves it or anyone does. Uh, instead, it's this punitive judgment um, that, that he has. So, yes, the cynic is trapped in that, uh, in that despair. But it seems very, it's, it's very protective or so, it's, um, or so it seems to them anyway. Yeah. Uh, the final mental health issue, I guess we were gonna we're gonna maybe yeah. consider here was the issue of that you know, um, the, the supposed integrity that he mm-hmm. he, perfect, he possessed prior to his fall, as he believes it, um, that's not really credible as we, for the reasons that we've kind of we've covered here. So, is there you know this this um, innocence that that Clements, uh attested to that that's not what we're aspiring to here. That's not the the right kind of goodness so is there a more legitimate kind of integrity do you think that we we really could aim for that you know that would really cut through this kind of more cynical fearful um viewpoint yes uh, somebody that is uh you know trying to achieve that more adult that more nuanced form of integrity is not so much caught up on other people's judgments it's it's not like they would be oblivious to them they would take feedback they would they would weigh up but what they recognize is that um the good is something that needs to be worked out and other people's uh, opinions might help towards that but it's not what it's fundamentally about really you don't need to turn other people into judges or authorities um to have integrity It's a great point, isn't it? Particularly in the world of you know of of all the the X Factor spin-offs and all the you know all the the reality yes. judges that there are out there who, who you know we, we we sort of kind of hold up as the you know the opinion that really matters on 
on on whatever talent it may be. You know, I suppose when it certainly when it comes to moral matters, at least, you know, in a way you could be you could be pursuing this in the dark. You know, you might, it would be unfortunate if you were never, I suppose, recognised or valued by anybody for your 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 attempts towards being a good person. But yeah. if that was, if you were unfortunate enough to be like that, um, that need not be the the end of the world actually you no, know it's it's no. still it's about really you being able to I suppose look yourself in the mirror and 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 be honest about your well it your is yes yeah. you know uh, well it is I mean I, I don't think Simon Cowell incidentally is a judge penitent I think he was simply a judge <laughs> I, I don't think there was much so. <laughs> penitence there uh, I've never uh, seen to, any to be no. honest and and <laughs> and I I don't think he would have been profoundly affected by Clemence's uh, discoveries either but um but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but to, I, I um, that, yeah. but to go back to the, the idea of integrity here, that um, I, I remember reading this book. I mean, it was a, it was quite a curious book, but but a good book actually, which was called Emotional Equations. It was dealing with certain emotions and putting them in this kind of equation form. And for integrity, it was um, authenticity times invisibility times reliability. So what it was saying is that you know. We have, you know, integrity is about doing things for, for because they're the right thing to do, no matter who sees it, really. So invisibility is a key thing. And so you remember that famous thought experiment from Plato, the, the Ring of Gyges, uh, that if you had yeah. that, you'd have this invisibility. What, you would, what would you do? Uh, this was, in a sense, a test of your integrity. Uh, would you have integrity or not? It's, yeah, it's a great point, isn't it? I mean, it is actually the absolute opposite of what, what Clemence has been essentially um, espousing in, in the fall, this idea that, yeah, maybe, invis- maybe invisibility is actually something ideal here when it comes to integrity. You know, the, the absolute absence of, of self-consciousness, of looking for, you know, approval and looking for, um, you know, other people to put their thumbs up to whatever it is we may be doing. Uh, that may happen and that may be nice, but it's almost like that needs to be, I guess, removed from the equation altogether from what you're saying for well, it to it be is, true integrity. Yeah. Well, it is. And I, and I remember hearing this really touching anecdote that um, on, on a a piece of news after John Candy had died that they had discovered that he had donated privately to the local hospital around the area in which he was filming. And that, that just underscored more um, how good a guy he was, you know, that it was done. So it was done uh, privately. It was done quietly. It was not announced. Uh, and that, that to me suggests that uh, that act was an act of integrity from him. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a nice it's a nice contrast, isn't it, to the much more kind of very very conspicuous, you know, charitable acts that you know many people in the limelight choose to choose to take part. And of course, I mean, not not to say that many others might not be doing doing what John Candy did. Actually, no, you know, course, we hope, of they, hope they are. And if if they are, then that's yeah, I guess that's the that's the real goodness there. Well, it is. The, I mean, you know, those great comedy writers Galton Simpson remember how they they showed Hancock's lack of integrity that when he goes to donate blood he asked uh, do you get a badge <laughs> and uh, yep. so I mean I'm not saying that completely invalidates what he was doing the character but it but it's not what integrity is about as I say no potential invisibility is uh, is a key aspect of it yeah, and of course, you know, because we have, you know, as we've 
as we've recognised earlier, you know, this that Clements is is right that we're all guilty at times of of being more, you know, um, secretly egotistical, maybe even secretly from ourselves. So it's all, I suppose, this kind of integrity that we're describing is really an ideal to aspire towards. Yes, it's not something yeah. we, if I guess, if we think we've got it, um, and that that's it, we've just achieved integrity. We're probably kidding ourselves. Um, it's yeah, obviously yeah. got to be that ongoing. Uh, battle in a way against our more self-interested and you know less yes. less savoury sides. I mean that's a good point. So, that an effort is required. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess um, maybe a, maybe a final uh, final note for us to end on uh, today, Alex. Then we'd be thinking about um, the issue of so what's what, what would what do we think has been the impact on our own lives of of reading of rereading this this interesting book? What 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 would you say? Um, well, I I was thinking about that, and you know how at the start of a conversation I, I said that, you know, when I was in my early 20s, this book could seem, you know, greatly compelling, Clemence's perspective. I wasn't seeing all the nuances or how calm Camus himself might be uh, getting us to, in subtle ways, doubt the character's uh, tale. But reading it now, I think the main reason why I don't buy into that perspective nearly as much as it's got a lot to do with the work that I do because you know I sit down practically on a daily basis hearing people's private thoughts their confessions and um, Mm. the the idea of humanity that I get from that uh, in these uh, secret confidential moments is not near nowhere near as bleak Uh, it's it's more optimistic uh, than than what Clemens had ever um you know, depicted, which gets me thinking that the character probably had few people ever confide in him, because if if you have people yeah. confide in you, as I do on a regular basis, that you can see that there is genuine guilt, there's, uh, there's contrition, there is uh, all kinds of soft and loving feelings that might not get directly expressed. We mustn't think that the private or the hidden is the Mr. Hyde. It's nowhere near as simple as that. Uh, one of the saddest facts of life is that some of the nicest uh, things that, that we could say about someone end up in their eulogy and might have gone unsaid yeah. when they were alive. So what what I'm saying is that, yes, as I think about how it, it, it relates to my life now, I think that doing my counselling work has uh, gave me more faith in people. I could see beyond what Clements had said. And so... Yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful for that, and I can understand even more now why Carl Rogers, a famous therapist, said that when he thought about society, he was pessimistic, and when he thought about individuals, he was optimistic. Mm-hmm. I think therapy work can help in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, that's that's really nice. I think. Um, I think. I think. I. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm not a therapist, but I. I you know. Um, it, it, I quite agree with you that you know, from a maybe slightly more mature perspective, um, you know, the, these kind of really cynical sentiments do just seem to not ring true. I think it really comes down to that. And again, of course, Camus himself probably wasn't wanting us to simply just swallow everything Clement said. I think it was much more complex than that. But yeah, I think um, if anyone was 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 kind of tending that way, then yeah, they they are maybe. Well, they they are undoubtedly missing something. I think you know. I think that people are not are not anything like the you know the kind of cr- hypocritical creatures, obviously that that Clemens wants to wants to paint. Um, no, 
No. So yeah, I, that, yeah. Well, that that's interesting. Yeah, my my takeaway from this one, Alex, was I I just it made me um you know I was struck by the, these incidents that that had obviously troubled Clements, you know that 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 he 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 sort of built into this narrative, and it kind of made me think that you know probably I guess maybe we all or I I don't know um are inclined sometimes to cling to to incidents, you know the, these kind of cringe moments where we've maybe looked bad or we've looked silly, and you know there's there's something slightly unfortunate about um about our ability to maybe sometimes remember more of the times where we've looked bad than maybe the times where we've simply done good regardless mm. of how how it mm. did or didn't look so mm. to me it made me yeah my, my takeaway i think was just that it made me think that when these incidents do come into my head about a time when i've maybe looked silly that um that isn't actually something that's really worth the, the time and energy to, to cling to because it's not really a moral issue is it i guess it's simply just yeah you looked bad you know we all we look silly sometimes you know um i yes um, yeah absolutely I, I, it's not as revelatory as what we might think uh i mean ricky yeah. gervais has made a career out of those kind of cringe worldly moments and and stuff how they yeah. how, how, how we could be affected by it but again it's also goes back to the issue of shame doesn't it too Indeed, yeah. I mean, if yeah, exactly. I mean, if if obviously, um, yeah, there's not a lot of place for for that kind of shame. I wouldn't have thought if we're if we're trying to be, you know, pursuing something that's more yes, towards yeah. integrity, as we described. So so yeah, the, yeah. These um, I think we can I think we can cut ourselves some slack that we'll all have this catalogue of times we've looked silly, um, but but that's okay. We just we can just leave that catalogue on the shelf. It's not really worth you know opening it up and 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 you know subjecting ourselves mentally again to these kind of these cringe moments. You know where they just we're going to get it wrong sometimes, we're going to look silly, and yes, that's, yeah. that's the, the, the creatures that we are, I guess. It could be part um, of being human. Um, yeah, I mean, we're absolutely. Not, I mean, one of the reasons why we love drama is that uh, characters might know the right thing to say in the right situation at the right time, but it's it's quite rare in life for people to be as articulate as that. And so, you know, we are at times fumbling through things, and... Uh, you know, that's a more compassionate um, take on ourselves I than this so, idea yeah. of having to be perfect. Um, we are going yeah. to say silly things or f- stumble on our words and so on. Um yeah, I mean, I, I mean, yeah. I was thinking about my, you know, more of a literal stumble when I, um, in the the three seconds on the DVD of my graduation when I crossed the stage, you know, I managed to step on my gown and stumble, you know, of course, yeah, you know, caught for posterity, but but you know, I mean, quite frankly, people that know me know that I, I bump into things quite regularly, you know, it's yes, just, um, yeah, that, you know, we can't true. always look like smooth operators, you know, and that's, we don't really need to, I guess. But that, that stumble didn't instigate a fall, didn't it? <laughs> well, not, well, I hope not. No. <laughs> I, I, there was no exile, was it? There was, was no result, exile. There was, yeah, there was nothing like way. that. But I, I'll know what will happen if you don't turn up for the next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hit me hard. Yes. You've gone in exile, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 